Welcome to Season 7 of Beyond the Jargon, a conversation with grad students about their research journey here at the University of Victoria from CFUV 101.9 FM. This episode was created on the traditional territory of the Songhees, Eskimos, and West Sandwich peoples, whose historical relationships with the land continue to this day. I am your host, Taiwo Afolabi. Welcome to another edition of Beyond the Jargon. I'm here with Stephanie Grook. Stephanie is a second year master's student here at the University of Victoria in the Department of Political Science. Uh, she completed her bachelor's degree at the University of Alberta with a double major in history and political science. Stephanie's master's research focuses on the international community's efforts to interrupt and eradicate human sex trafficking networks operating primarily within a European context. It's good to have you here today, Stephanie. Hi, it's great to be here. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about um, Stephanie's work. So Stephanie, in just a few minutes, just kind of summarize what's really your research all about. Um, so there's a lot of jargony words there, uh, international human trafficking, protocols, all of those things. So what essentially I'm looking at is the way in which international lawmakers, so in its current iteration, that is representatives who meet together at the United Nations to create international agreements that govern the way countries interact with each other. Um, so I'm looking at international agreements as they relate to human sex trafficking. So the movement of individuals for the purpose of primarily sexual exploitation. Um, and so what I'm specifically interested in is the way in which the system itself affects the way these laws are created and enacted. So the tensions that exist when, say, a representative from Canada goes to negotiate an agreement, they are there representing the country, the state of Canada. So what happens when what is in the best interest of the state of protecting their country is not necessarily in the best interest of the individuals or the people that they're tr they're talking about. So I'm looking both at historical legislation. So when human trafficking first started to be discussed at an international level back in the early 1900s to now, how do we, how have the protection of trafficking victims, how has that been discussed within discussions of protecting the state? Interesting. So, um, why did you choose to pursue this kind of research? <laughs> I, I really stumbled into it, actually. Um, so where I did my bachelor's degree, every person who graduates has to do a major research project at, in their final year. And so they build up to it. So you do in your second year research methodology. In your third year, you do um, like a literature review, annotated bibli, And then in your fourth year, you're supposed to do this major research project. Um, so between those, I realized that I didn't want to continue the project I was doing, but I had no idea what I wanted to study. And I was leaving that summer for um, an international internship in Washington, D.C. And I was went very like, I'll figure it out. <laughs> Future Stephanie has to worry about this gigantic major research project. 
And so I was sitting at a panel about different visas that the U.S. government offers. It's very interesting. But um, there was an NGO there from a local um, torture abolition NGO, one there from a human trafficking NGO, and there were a couple others, and they were talking about these specialty visas. So uh, a torture victim applying for a site, like what visa options are available to them, blah, 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 blah. And just offhandedly, the representative from the human rights organization was talking about how Washington, D.C. was actually, um, it had a very large trafficking problem. And that one of the issues they faced in that context specifically was that um, the diplomats proved a big problem. Um, because they would bring people over largely without documentation, without anything. But there was, if people escaped or however the U.S. government became aware, the only tool at their disposal was to blacklist diplomats because of diplomatic immunity. Um, so there was really nothing, no tools for them to begin to interrupt these um, cases. Uh, I didn't do any further research into the claims, but I started. it, it got me to start thinking about the ways in which um, something like diplomatic immunity, which is... Um, it, it's when a diplomat is, so if you have an ambassador from another country, um, you can't try them to your nation's laws specifically. I don't know all the intricacies of how they work, but it's the idea that, um, they're immune from prosecution on certain charges within your country. Um, so I started looking at these tools of state building and tools of, the state system that we know, how in other ways are they affecting um, people and really getting into, and it was the nitty gritty of um, can states, if they're looking out for states' best interests, also protect humans? Interesting. Uh, one of the things I'm looking at is trying to to decipher the ways in which um, th there are parts of the state system that would, the system itself gets in the way. And then there are ways in which there are unintended consequences of the laws that are enacted. What are the provisions in place to protect individuals from sex trafficking? Uh, so right now, and it, it's taken a very interesting turn. Um, so if you look at historical agreements, so if you look at there was an agreement between a number of European states in 1904 and then again in 1910, those agreements look specifically at protecting people from getting trafficked. Um, so they were about putting information bulletins at point of entry, um, having people kind of look into and question why women might be traveling internationally alone, um, looking at international employment agencies to see if they're legitimate and legitimately offering work to particularly single women, or if they're a front for something else. Um, these agreements didn't look at women who were currently in trafficking situations and they didn't mention protections for people trying to leave trafficking situations. They only looked at um, 
stopping people from getting involved in it. Um, there's a complete shift now if you look at the current protocol under the UN is it talks about the ways in which you can protect victims who are leaving trafficking situations. Um, one thing to note is a lot of these uh, protections for people leaving are tied to or can be tied to their willingness to agree with to agree to participate in criminal investigations. So we might offer housing or temporary visas or psychological or health assistance to you if you work with prosecutors to bring down this trafficking organization or the people who put you in these situations. So maybe to kind of take a step back, I feel like, like jumping way ahead, would be to kind of take us through um, like the history of existing international protocols. Local groups in Europe, feminist groups, women's groups, um, became interested in trafficking in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and began pushing their local governments to do something about trafficking. Um, at the time, in the historical context of these, um, most European countries still had colonial holdings. They were still involved in these nation-building enterprises. And one of the things that many of them were involved in was something called state-based or state-sponsored prostitution. Um, so this began early. So this began in 1802 with the French, and it be began as an administrative regime. Um, so it wasn't necessarily laws were passed, but their bureaucracy and the administration started making decisions that uh, would offer venereal disease testing for prostitutes which eventually within a few years led to keeping ledgers of who the known prostitutes were, which then led to the establishment of brothels. And if they could, uh, brothels existed, but these state-sponsored ones were, um, you can keep your brothel if you pay this tax to us. And so that served a couple purposes in terms of within the European context is that it um, controlled allegedly the spread of venereal diseases. So if these prostitutes were getting tested for venereal and treated for venereal diseases, um, it was less likely to spread to the general population, but it also kept prostitution in brothels over there. Um, this idea also quickly spread to the colonies where there has always been a link between um, nation building, militarism, and sex, and the idea that um, they didn't, want their European people um, mixing with the people in the colonies. So what started, they many of these European countries, they allowed for concubines. And so then they started to have to deal with mixed race babies and they didn't want to do that. So the idea was either allow for whole families to go to the colonies or set up these brothels for European men to sleep with European women. And so they had these state-based prostitution regimes set up. And so when they go into negotiating these international agreements on trafficking, they're going to be very hesitant in their own interest not to accidentally enact um, any international agreement that could affect their own interest. So that's why a lot of these early agreements focus on stopping people from getting into trafficking situations rather than doing something about the causes or the, um, the, the trafficking in and of itself. 
So, um, and, and what do you find right now looking at um, international protocol? And, and you might want to, you know, tell us some of the protocols that you've, you know, you've examined. What are the key issues that you think are really worth revisiting? Or what are the, you know, tensions or contradictions that you see right now looking at those protocols? So the current protocol, um, I've only recently started my chapter on the historical protocol, so I'll speak mostly to the current one. It was passed in 2000. It's called the UN Protocol to Prevent, Suppress, and Punish Trafficking in Persons, Especially Women and Children. And it's part of a larger convention on um, transnational organized crime. And so essentially the convention is a binding agreement amongst the signatories, so the states that agree to be bound by that convention. And the protocol was just kind of added. So the protocol doesn't exist outside the context of the convention itself. Um, and there are, like we talked about the areas earlier, uh, the areas worth visiting because some of the issues, some of the ways in which victims are put at a disadvantage are because of the system. So there's really like, um, if we talk about avenues of complaint, International agreements are agreements between states. And so even though something like the protocol is addressing protections for individuals or ways to help individuals, um, if an individual feels like a state isn't being held to this convention, they have no recourse for being able to say that. Um, they would have to convince another state to bring a complaint against which is uh, just ends up being it's never happened <laughs> uh, in this context. Um, but that is just because the way the international legal system is set up, it's a system that exists between states. So I, I, I talk about it in my paper, but it's, it's one of those things that to change it would mean to overhaul the entire way in which we understand international law. Um, but one thing I look at is also the unintended consequences of some of the decisions that went into making these protocols. Um, so one of them is in terms of definition. In order to legislate something, you need to define what that thing is. Um, so if we're going to have a protocol on human trafficking, it, it needs to include a definition on what human trafficking is and more so what human trafficking isn't. And so the current definition talks has three main parts. It has, in order to be defined as human trafficking, there needs to be an act. So someone needs to do something. And in this context, they either need to recruit or transport or transfer or harbor a person. Um, there needs to be a means component. So the methods that they use become important. Um, in this case, it's um, the use of a threat or... Um, a threat of force or the use of force um, in terms of straight up abduction or fraud or deception or abuse of power. And then there needs to be a purpose. The reason for all of this would be for exploitation. Uh, so to be trafficking, you need to have all three of those things. Um, and the way in which it is defined in the protocol is left it's as specific as, as it can be in order to be broad enough that all governments would sign on to it. And so 
the introduction of, so the reintroduction of a means component does create some issues in terms of categorization. So it's reintroduced consent as a definitional, um, a core definitional term. Uh, so in order to be a victim of trafficking, you have to be somehow deceived or your agency has to be diminished. Um, and if we think about how pop culture talks about trafficking, you think Liam Neeson taken where uh, his daughter is kidnapped forcibly from a hotel room and sold into this human trafficking organization. Um, a majority of human trafficking cases are not that. Um, there's a lot more nuanced in people's experiences. And so when you have something like that, that defines someone as a victim, it can lead to a lot of unintended consequences. Um, for example, the protocol in which trafficking is discussed, that convention also has a protocol on human smuggling. And essentially, what it boils down to is the difference between smuggling and trafficking. A smuggling person can a smuggled person can be exploited, but because they consented to the journey, they paid a smuggler, they crossed the border. They're now an illegal immigrant in that country, regardless of the exploitation that they endured to get there. Um, so we end up. It boils down to if, if at any point a victim of trafficking knew what was happening or agreed to it, they are either forced to stay in an exploitative situation and not seek help, forced to diminish their own agency and hope that no one finds out that they knew more than they seem to, or they go to the police or they go and seek help and they could end up being treated as a criminal instead of a victim. Okay. Uh, um, there are two two things that that I that I really strike in. One is that sense of agency, and the idea of consent. I'm not claiming that um, what you're doing boils down to these two ideas, but I think from what you said into definition, um, how do you think that the international protocol can address these two key ideas? At the end of the day, I don't think it in its current iteration can. Um, largely because, again, this protocol is embedded in a crime and security framework. Um, it is part of a larger convention on organized crime. Um, it is overseen by the UN Office of... Um, by the UN Office on Drugs and Crime. So it's, it's, the UN has tools available to it. It has a human rights regime. Uh, this was created and established completely outside of that. This was established within this crime and security framework um, in a convention that's purpose is to, um, to crack down on organized crime. So they talk about... Uh, Trafficking is discussed in the same context as drug trafficking, gun trafficking, um, the illegal crossing of different plants across a border. Like, um, 
the the larger context in which it was created doesn't really have the tools necessary to deal with this issue from a human rights victim-centered perspective. perspective. Um, so if, and this might be a very big task. <laughs> um, uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's not even within the purview of your research, but if you had to create or give us an idea of a new iteration, what would that look like? That would protect human Hey, Stephanie, come on my podcast and create a new state system. (laughs) We're going to get rid of... Yeah. Um, Or or, or what are the elements that you think that they need to think about? Um, Because I think it's... I I feel that it's it's really important to... um, Now that we've identified or your researchers identify some of those areas that, that need, you know, that need to be looked into... Is there a way we could provide another narrative and say, okay, these are things that I, I'm not saying this is like, this is it, but these are some of the ideas that we can think about to change the iteration. So I have a very, very narrow, I look at international human sex trafficking, the laws of it. That is a very, very specific thing. If you scale up, these tensions are representative of a larger issue, I think, where you have a state based system where these countries are coming together to create agreements and solve problems. But a lot of problems that the world is facing right now don't adhere to state-based boundaries. Um, So the idea of climate change, the idea of globalization, the movement of people, all of these things don't adhere to the specific boundaries and lines that we've drawn on a map. Um, If we look specifically at, like we were talking earlier before we started recording about the refugee crisis, this whole idea of irregular migration. I I happen to do human trafficking. You do internally displaced people. um, But it all fits under this larger banner of irregular migration. Um, People move. People cross borders, some through regular legal channels, some through irregular, quote unquote, illegal channels. Um, and these are, be- I, I personally feel that the reason in which we seem so blindsided by a lot of these problems is that the system in which um, we're trying to solve them confines us in a way that doesn't allow us to see solutions that might be more um, useful or more applicable to the situation. Um, And at the end of the day, that argument does boil down to, is the system in which we organize ourselves capable of dealing with current realities? And apparently I've been told that that's way too big of a project for an MA thesis, (laughs) (laughs) which is why we're very narrowly talking about human trafficking and the laws. So so again... um so international human sex trafficking, like you said, it's it is really specific. Mm-hmm. Why it and how is it relevant in a in a larger picture? Um, it is very specific. The actual term used by the UN is human trafficking for the purpose of sexual exploitation. Um, but the UN likes to use uh, very long terms, and I would end up with a five hundred page master's thesis if I didn't condense them colloquially. <laughs> Um, I think it, I think it's important to a larger conversation, especially where we are now in discussions of irregular migration, 
because we very much like to categorize things. Things are easier for us as humans to deal with if we know what they are and what they aren't. Um, so you have citizens of countries. You have permanent residents of countries. You have immigrants. You have refugees. You have asylum seekers. You have human sex trafficking victims. You have quote-unquote illegal border crossers. Um, and a lot of these terms are being used in the media to talk about very, very relevant things that a lot of people are now, a lot of people in the Western context are now very interested in. Um, and I think that if we start discussing the ways in which the international system has created these definitions of people and these definitions of people can decide whether or not someone gets to be protected. They can decide whether or not someone gets sent back to a dangerous situation. They can decide if someone um, meets the designated requirements of being allowed in a country. And those definitions were created by people in a room discussing international law. Um, I mean, my research itself looks at critiquing that system in a very specific way. But if we were to scale that conversation up, I think that it has um, large implications on how we perceive and what we perceive as people who get to be in a country. Another question that kind of seemed close to that would be what's the connection, what's the relevance to us now in Victoria or in British Columbia and the larger context in Canada? I focus on the international, but if you were to look at the Borders and Globalization Project at housed in the Centre for Global Studies here at the University of Victoria, uh, they actually have a lot of work coming out on specifically the Pacific Northwest and sex trafficking within that context. Um, I think a couple years ago, Alex Norfolk was on this podcast and he talked about the specific context and what it means for um, the Pacific Northwest. So the border between the U.S. and Canada here at the B.C. level. And he talks about... Um, human sex trafficking in that context. I'm not equipped really to speak to the local. Um, so I think that if you were interested in that, there is a lot of work being done here at UVic on irregular migration more generally, as well as human sex trafficking specifically in that context. Um, so let's go back to the international, mm. um, the global. Uh, in your research, are there specific countries that you think that in terms of, I mean, they've taken the UN com, um, protocol and they're in one way or another really following the spirit of the law in the, in the country? Is there any example? I haven't gotten to the point of looking for specific, specific cases. Um, I mean, I can talk, th there are ways in which this international protocol has been put politicized and become a political tool. So there are cases, and off the top of my head, I don't know country specific, so I, I don't want to call anybody out, but there are cases where a country will suspect that 
there's a labor camp or a group of people um, working whether or not they think that they're there illegally or whatnot, where they'll conduct a raid and say that it's an anti-trafficking raid, that they're trying to protect people and use this legislation as a way to really crack down on other types of work. Not And um, it's worth noting that, and I focus on international human sex trafficking, uh, but international labor trafficking is also very much an issue. Um, that is less focused on in research, less focused on in media attention. Um, and so you have people who may or may not have been trafficked for the purpose of labor exploitation that are now being arrested as irregular foreign workers um, in countries where they're then detained in detention centers. But again, I, I don't want to speak to any country specifically because I'm not doing... a. I, I'm comparing over time, so I'm comparing historical proto, uh, historical agreements to the current rather than comparing case studies of specific countries. Where, in the the language in which the the protocol was written, uh, which you've clearly articulated, kind of raised two questions that I uh, hopefully you can speak to them. One is the idea of compliance mm -hmm. in terms of the nation states, and the other one is how do they enforce it. So the issue of compliance in the UN is one that is greatly, greatly discussed. Um, if you think about it at the national level, if, if we think about national laws, um, we, we have police services. So if one of us were to commit a crime there's so, or, or to go against the law, um, there is a way to ensure <laughs> that we... There, there's an enforcement at, at the national level. Yeah, right? at, at the national but, level, but there's at an the enforcement. United Nation at, level, at the there. United Nation level, they because again, as I love critiquing the state system, um, the system in which we have established, it's very, very hard to ensure enforcement. The system that we have, and this might get jargony, so tell me if I need to explain anything. The system we have is premised on a sovereign state system. The idea that every country. Um, has the government within every country has a government that government is free to create laws within their boundary no government of one country can influence another country um and they have control over what happens within their border their border um it gets really hard to enforce international agreements when no there there, can, there is no we have the UN it's this um international body that gets together but it's not a global government it's not a supranational organization it doesn't really have the authority that it has is based on states agreeing to that authority so if at any point say speak uh, speaking in hyperboles um say a country decides to go against an international agreement um, that they're signed on to, the international, the UN can say, but, but look, you, you agreed to this. You, that's your country's signature. You agreed to adopt these measures. Did it sanction, for example? I mean, they can sanction. Um, they're not going to, they're going to sanction on things like nuclear weapons. They're going to sanction on things like trade. They're not going to sanction a government for not adhering to a protocol about human trafficking. I say they're not going, I, I'm very pessimistic that they ever would. 
are there countries uh, I know you know you're not looking into case studies but are there countries that uh, from history the United Nations have used have been able to influence or, or they've sanctioned or they've intervened when it comes to uh, human uh, sex trafficking no I don't think so um, there are so it's actually the United States has made itself kind of the um, beacon of international human trafficking um, monitoring. So they release the annually, they release a trafficking in persons report um, in which they have created a three tier system. So tier one countries are ones that are almost in full compliance of international agreements. They're the ones that are um, making efforts, working towards blah, 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 blah. Then tier two and tier three. Um, and it's, I think, like a 600-page report. I have never read them cover to cover. But it does do, it looks at every single country that year, what they've done on their anti-trafficking efforts, um, if there's corruption, areas that they need to improve on, how that they can raise up in their tier level. Um so on and so it's very if, if you're looking for country specific data it, it's a very interesting place to go under the caveat of recognizing that it is written by the u.s state department so there might be some stuff there to take into account um but i don't think that they it i don't think not adhering to human trafficking agreements has ever been the cause for sanctions or any sort of um, international um, action. Not to not to reduce your work. Uh, I'm just trying to. I'm thinking through all the conversation. So at the end of the day, perhaps one of the things that you hope to do is to shine that you know that spotlight on protocols so that it can start you know protecting the individual as uh, alongside the state yeah. rather than protecting the state and leaving the individual is that and so i you've been involved in the center for global studies i gave a global talk and i think i said the word complex hmm. probably more times than trafficking um without realizing it but one of the goals of this is in a state-based system where we're focused like all the things we've talked about um we end up with very, people's experiences get reduced to very specific categories. Um, and I think that there are people doing a lot of work in Europe right now that look at cases where a woman from a country where they don't have a lot of economic opportunity. Um, she, she, um, the woman, one, one of the academics I'm referencing, I cannot pronounce her name right now but um she worked at a shelter in Italy for women who were escaping trafficking situations and she was finding that a lot of these women actually were were consenting to work in sex work so they, they were from countries where they didn't have any economic opportunity and so they they got into business with these groups that would offer them safe passage into western Europe um, and in exchange, they would work in sex work. 
Now, a lot of these women thought that this meant working at a dance hall or in a strip club or the, the specifics of the sex work that they would be working in were not defined. And then they end up in a country where their passport is then taken away and they're indebted to the smugglers or to the people who help them cross the border. Um, they're forced to work on street corners and brothels, wherever. They're, they're, they were de- deceived in the type of work they were doing, but they weren't deceived in their border crossings. So they at sometimes even have contracts that show that they agreed to pay X amount of money to get into Western Europe. So if these women were to leave their trafficking situation, are they considered victims? And so I, I, I think that a lot of what is currently out there doesn't um, properly take into account um, the different experiences of people and how just because a person agreed to work in sex work or that they agreed to cross a border, does that mean that their exploitation is somehow less meaningful than someone who who was deceived from the beginning. Hmm. Are there, you know, ways to kind of connect what you're doing with stories that connect this to the human, to the feeling, to the you know, empathy, to compassion, so that we don't so that it so that we see how that translates into mm-hmm. law and all of that. I, I don't know, but, but you get the idea of what I'm trying to yeah, ask. It's- yeah. um, and I think there's, th- there is a lot of work on human sex trafficking that argues to just not ignore the state, but to, to focus on ways that we can uh, start addressing the issue outside the state mechanism. Because as you said, when we weren't recording, like, it doesn't always make sense. It's not always functional. It has these issues. Um, but if if we double back to how I originally got into this idea is realizing that there are state-based mechanisms that they're just, they're not just not helping trafficking victims, but they're actually impeding the ability to protect them. And so regardless of whether or not I believe the United Nations system is functioning or useful or in any way a legitimate method of governing. Um, it exists and it is, states have bought into its existence. Um, therefore, what it does, does have implications. And so what I, I'm specifically looking at is the way in which this international system that we've decided to buy into. And when I say we, I mean government, like we as in countries and states more so rather than we as individuals, um, how that either helps to or impedes our ability to help individuals. And I think you've gotten to the root of like, this project is actually a guise for me to critique the state system <laughs> secretly. Um, but but there is a lot of work being done on the individual stories, on what individuals can do on outside of this system. Where can we go from here? I'm not there yet. Well, um, I want to thank you, Stephanie, for, for taking the time to talk to us about your research. Um, you know, some subjects are kind of very heavy and you just need to... What? They're heavy? <laughs> it's really heavy. Yeah. I mean, I've had a lot of... Lot of um, examples and people's stories that have you know in, in my in my various um, uh, work, uh, you know that 
they were victims of 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 this and and them uh, some of them like you rightly pointed out in your in some of your examples some of them were deceived into it some of them it was a way to get you know to leave the you know the physical geography that they were in because of the economics of things and 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 really it's it's just some some stories can just they're just very pathetic and and really 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 given a lens for a lens looking into you know the legal aspect of it I and think and i do try important. i don't know if this was a necessarily a self-preservation decision but in looking at international law it keeps me from having to read a lot of case studies of the specific individual experiences but when when you do end up in that literature it can be of people who are fleeing the most horrendous of situations and they're put in a position where they either die where they are or trust a smuggler yeah and then end up exploited or they and and then get to where they're going and are forced to pretend they're victims of trafficking or face deportation and then you have actual victims of trafficking and some of the things i've read about um one of the key issues that one of the key things that in organized crime, they need to maintain control of these people, and control tactic tactics can range from purely physical beatings to psychological manipulation and control. And you you read these stories, and it's just it, it makes you want to do something about it. I think that your work is really meaningful uh, in the international and the global context, but really really narrowing it down even to the local. Um, but we see the ripple effects in our environment, in the laws that we, you know, that we legislate, in the laws that we execute, and the implication on people that come into the country, and, and all of those things. So really, thank you so much, and um, I'm hoping that you can finish, write it up. And <laughs> Thank you for listening to Beyond the Jargon on CFUV 101.9 FM. For interviewees, contact information, or to listen to this episode again, visit CFUV podcast.com you can also subscribe read or review beyond the jargon and other cfuv podcast uh, wherever you get your podcast <laughs>